Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Turn there with me in your Bible or look it up on your Bible app. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the word, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead Church, and uh, I am... Um, greatly honored that you are joining us uh, for our worship this morning as we continue to look at Ephesians 6. I want to remind you, wherever you're tuning in, whether it's on Facebook or Vimeo, to go ahead and like our social media pages. Uh, go ahead and tune in and like Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter. We're pushing out information. We're um, uh, creating some online community, and uh, it's a great way for you to connect uh, last week we announced that uh, we are working toward our regathering plan, right? The next stage in it. We've had our, our backyard and driveway gatherings over the month of July and August and September, working toward regathering in the building. A um, little bit of a curveball, y'all. Uh, who would have guessed that Madison County would have become, uh, or at least our region, would have, have become the uh, the black sheep of the family, right? We're one of the worst ones in Illinois right now. Yay! Us! Overachievers! But what that does mean is is that we have been pushed back a step. Uh, we are now conditioned orange, whatever that means. We're stage three, step four. I don't even know. But what it does mean is that... Um, our community is asking us not to have gatherings of over uh, 25 people in indoor spaces, which obviously impacts our plan significantly. Um, I was asked this week if, if that is mandatory for churches, and, and it's not because uh, Illinois has not made these guidelines mandatory for churches. Uh, they are trying to avoid, I believe, uh, a constitutional crisis of church versus state and, and, and all the legal battles that come with that. But the guidelines are given, and we are asked to adhere to them, and we believe in order to be good neighbors, uh, people who love one another and love our community, that we should cooperate with our community in our efforts to navigate this pandemic, which means that at this stage in time, uh, we are not going to have gatherings of over 25 in our building. So we're changing our plans, right, which you have to keep doing, very adaptive during this season of time. 
Uh, we're going to be pushing out more information through my, my weekly newsletter, uh, as well as on our social media feeds so that you can be brought up to date. We are hoping to be able to bring in small numbers of people beginning in September uh, for a live service. Uh, it will be live streamed beginning the first Sunday in September. We think that is really important. Uh, to once again create that sense of, of community and continuity so that we're actually gathering at the same time and, and worshiping at the same time and sharing the Lord's Supper all at the same time. And so um, we're going to be pushing out more information about that, but, but stay tuned to the newsletter, stay tuned to our social media feed as we continue to navigate. And, uh, and obviously, if you have questions or concerns, feel free to email us. You can always reach us at info at trailheadonline.org. All right, this morning... We are moving back into Ephesians 6 and our discussion of uh, disarming our armor, our worldly armor, so that we can be um, covered in the full armor of God, right? We're, we're being commanded to, to put on the full armor of God so that we can obey the central command of, of the passage, right? Which is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Right to be rooted and grounded in his love and then equipped in his love to move out to love others. And the only way we're going to be able to do that, to stand rooted and grounded in his love and then have the traction to move out and to love others is if we are standing in the full armor of God. This morning we're going to be talking about our first weapon, right? At this point, we're fully decked out in our armor. We, we've put on all our defensive armor. Um, we've got our shield, our helmet. We've got our belt. We've got our breastplate. We've got our shoes. Um, and, and there's only two pieces left that we're going to discuss, uh, prayer and the Bible. And this morning, we're going to be talking about taking up your only weapon, the sword, right? Uh, the sword of the Spirit. Um, the sword of the Spirit, which I, I love this, as you guys know, uh, gives me an opportunity to LARP it a little bit and, and pull out my, my prop, right? Um, there's my prop. It is, it is a Roman sword, and it is real, and it could kill you, which is why it makes people nervous. Um, but it is real. I'll talk more about it in a minute. Uh, it is a dangerous weapon to pick up, right? It is, uh, and I'm talking about the Word of God here, uh, because the Word of God will always go to war with its enemy, right? The Word of God is always going to go to war with its enemy. What is its enemy? Anything opposed to God. Anything opposed to God. Pride, abuse of power, greed, lust, selfish ambition. The Word of God always goes to war with its enemy, both out there and in here. And that's really good news because it means that the Word of God is going to fight for us against our enemy. And uh, it's going to defend us, but it's also going to free us. It's going to go to war with the evil within us that enslaves us, uh, disappoints us, um, and, and causes us to act in, in theologically insane and self-destructive ways, right? But here's the thing, to unleash the power of the Word of God. We have to learn not only how to use it, we have to learn how to submit to it. If we're really going to unleash the, the power of the word in our lives, we have to know uh, how to use it, but we also need to be practically learning how to submit to it. So let's talk a little bit about the Roman sword, right? Because again, Paul has in mind the Roman armor as he is going through this panoply, this, this full armor, um, and he is talking specifically about a Roman sword. The Roman sword was a short, double-edged sword 
that uh, was used for close combat, right? It was an, an essential piece of, of armor for uh, any Roman soldier. Remember, they, they, they have their helmet, and they've got their breastplate, and they've got this huge shield, and they're shoulder to shoulder with, with all the other Roman soldiers, so they can create a shield wall, and they can create a roof over their head. And, and this short sword is for up-close personal combat, right? They didn't have this, these huge double-handed broadswords. They, they didn't have these big sweeping... This was designed for in-close. This was designed for, for very, very close quarters combat. And it was double-edged, right? Which means that it was dangerous no matter which way it was, uh, which way it was moving, right? Now, we know from, from ancient literature and, and history that certain swords... Uh, took on special value because of who owned them, right? To the point that even to the point where, where, where if somebody was famous enough, the sword itself started being seen as carrying its own power, right? There was Excalibur with King Arthur and Andrew with, with Aragorn and Lord of the Rings, right? These swords that, that not only have names, but took on specific value because of their history and the people they were connected with. We are called to take up the sword of the Spirit. Of all the swords that we could be called to take up, None is more powerful or prestigious. The Word of God is the weapon of the Spirit of God. He he forged it and He empowers it. Now to be clear, we are talking about the Bible. We're talking about the written Word of God. The most incredible book that has ever existed. Right? The Spirit of God wrote this book. And he did it through people. So, so he empowered or inspired individual people throughout history. And, and he worked through their personalities, right? The Gospel of John is very different from the Gospel of Mark, right? He worked through their personalities. He worked through their intellect. The vocabulary of Paul is, is different from, from the vocabulary of, of Luke, Right, and you can tell by by how they use language, who wrote what. Right, um, he worked through their intellects. He worked through through their experiences and their history. Right, he he worked through them as individual people. He was he was working through them to tell his story, which sounds really crazy. Right, it sounds really crazy, but I want to tell you that there's really no other way to explain this book. Right? This is, this is this book in front of us. It's so common, right? Everybody has a Bible in their home. Every library has one on the shelf, right? They're so common in America that I think we've come to, to, to cease to recognize what a remarkable book and what a remarkable gift this book is to us. Throughout history, of course, there were people who died to protect this book, died to make sure it was translated into other languages so that people could have access to it because it was so valuable. But think about it, you guys. It's not just one book. Right? It's not like, it's not like somebody sat down and was like, oh, I'm gonna write a great story, right? It is 66 different books. And those 66 different books are different genres, right? You've got, you've got personal letters. You've got didactic letters. You've got history. You've got poetry. You've, you've got prophecy, right? 66 different books. 40 different authors. 40 different authors, right? That were writing in three different languages over the span of about 2,000 years but it tells one story. That's insane. 
it tells one story, right? I, I was in college, I was, I was the copy editor for our yearbook, which means I was in charge of all of the, the paragraphs and, and the headers and, and the captions, anything that was words, uh, I was in charge of overseeing as we put this yearbook together in college. I had a team of about eight people on my copy team. And, and, and let me just tell you, it was ridiculously hard over the course of a single year to keep them all centered on a single theme, right? Because a good yearbook has a central theme and, and each paragraph and each caption kind of reiterates and ties into this theme. And, and yet you've got eight different people with different personalities, different, different creative bents, uh, different, different ideas, different ways of, of engaging grammar to try to create a cohesive whole was ridiculously hard. How in the world do you do it? With a book that, that has about 40 different authors and is written over 2,000 years, three different languages, multiple cultures, what in the world? How does that happen? It only happens if you have a divine copy editor. It only happens if you have one person telling the story through all the individual people that are writing it. The Bible tells a single Story. It is not a collection of loosely related fables or general life wisdom. It, it is like a tapestry. Um, if you've ever seen the picture of a tapestry, it is, it is beautiful on the front and it is chaotic on the back, right? Because it's made up of all these individual strands, all these individual strings, all these different colors, and, and, and they're all woven together with, with purpose, right? But if you're looking at the back, it doesn't make any sense. And that's honestly, when you get into the individual stories of the Bible, when you get into to these crazy, how does that story tie into this story? And how does that piece of history tie into that? And what's the central theme? And it just seems chaotic. You have to be able to step back to see the whole picture, right? And honestly, that, that's also true in your own life. The way God works is, is we often lose the big picture by getting lost in the details of the moment, All right? We don't, we, we forget that, that, our story is one story in, in billions of stories. And those billions of stories are coming together to tell one greater story of redemption and restoration. That's what the Bible is. It is a singular story of redemption and restoration with a central hero. Genesis, in the very beginning of Genesis, we've got the promise of the hero who's going to come. That promise is reiterated throughout the Old Testament until he comes in the Gospels. Jesus is born and he lives the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died and rises again in victory over our sin, right? He becomes the great hero who has reversed the great rebellion, born the great consequence, and delivers us into the great blessing. Right? And then we're entrusted with that message through this stage of the story where we are sent out to be disciples who make disciples and we're waiting for the final chapter of the story where the hero returns and once again the tree of life is at the center. Right? Where, where once again we can be human as we are created to be human, redeemed and fully restored under our great King Jesus. No longer under our fallen father Adam, but under our new father right? The, the, the one who has recreated the human race through his death and resurrection, Jesus himself. That's the story of the Bible, the grand narrative that makes sense of all the other stories, right? You have to keep the scope in mind to understand the details as you encounter them. This book is supernatural. It is supernaturally inspired it was created and forged by the Spirit himself, and it is the Spirit himself who empowers it as we engage it. It is living and powerful. In fact, take a look at these verses. This is Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It's not just a dead book on a shelf. These aren't just words on a page. It is living and it is active, and it is sharper than any 
two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So that's our weapon. We're being told to take up the word of God. Take up the sword of the spirit. What does that look like in spiritual warfare, right? Because we're being told to stand in this battlefield and to stand against the schemes of our enemy, right? Who is kicking up all the dust of deception and lies, who is trying to ensnare us and entrap us, to get us to fight for the wrong hills and to die for the wrong causes, to, to mistake our mission field for our battlefield. How do, we, how do we use the word of God in this spiritual battle against this spiritual enemy? Well, we actually have an incredible example of this very thing in the Gospels. Jesus himself took up the sword of the Spirit in his battle against our, our enemy, right? This took place right at the beginning of, of, his, of his ministry, right? Let's put these verses up. This is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, pause there. So this is right after he's been baptized. It's at the very beginning of, of, his, of his ministry. It's about AD 30, right around there. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's been baptized. He has been, which, which means he was baptized by John the Baptist. It was a public declaration that he was beginning his ministry as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, as the great hero. And he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. Notice the spirit has a purpose here. This isn't, mis this isn't a mistake. This is a critical piece of, of, of God's plan, right? He is being led out to be tempted by the devil. Now, I don't think the devil knew what the plan was. <laughs> I think he becomes kind of an unwilling pawn in the process. Willing, but we'll talk about that. But, but not really full understanding what's going on. And in order to tempt Satan into this battle, right, Jesus fasts for 40 days, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, right? Think about that. He drank water, I'm sure, but, but he fasted from food for 40 days and 40 nights. His body is actually going into survival mode, right? It's actually going into starvation mode. He is beyond hungry at this point, right? He is, his body is desperately weak and yearning, right? And I love how, how Matthew just states, he was hungry. Yeah, he was hungry, okay? He was like starving, and then the tempter came. All right, so this seemed like the perfect time to attack Jesus, right? He's just kind of hanging back and watching, and, and, and obviously he knew the promises of the Son of God. He, he was familiar with, with the scriptures that had been written and revealed. He, he knew what was in the Bible, he, right? That's, that's why he inspired uh, Herod to try to kill all the kids that were being born, and, and, and he knew what was happening. But what he saw here was a unique opportunity. Here was the Son of Man. Here was the hero, weakened by his fasting and vulnerable to attack. Now, I, obviously, he didn't understand that it was actually the perfect time to trap the tempter. Um, but, but he came into this battle. For us, as we read this, this is a fascinating look at how Jesus defeated temptation. Not as God, but as man. Right? Because remember, he is Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, three who's and one what. Uh, forever eternally God, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit uh, in power, glory, dignity, and personhood, but uniquely incarnated, became flesh, became Jesus. And in this battle, it is in his humanity that he engages 
his enemy. And Satan came with his only enemy. I mean, his only weapon, right? What's his weapon? His schemes, his, his deceitfulness, right? He, he is going to come with subtle appeals to pride and to shame and to worldliness, right? To independence from God, to defining your, the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, to live in competition with God instead of humble dependence on God, right? And there's, there's a subtle challenge throughout where he's saying, you need to doubt your father and become self-sufficient. You need to doubt your father and become self-sufficient. There are three temptations that take place in this passage. Three fiery darts, as Paul would describe them in uh, Ephesians 6, that were designed to specifically pierce Jesus in the heart that would lead to him doubting his father and acting independently of his power. So the first temptation, in verses 3 and 4, <coughs> it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves, of bread. Obviously a, a compelling temptation given the fact that he is near starvation. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. All right, so he, he crafts this temptation to this unique opportunity, which he always does, right? That's what a schemer does. He is continually looking at how he can package the lie in a way that's going to become attractive to the one he's trying to deceive. Right? And, and, and here's the thing. He, he only has one product that he's selling, and that's death. Right? And death is never attractive. So he has to repackage it continually in a way that it looks like a promise of life. So he has to come in a way that, that this thing that he's offering, rebellion against God, which leads to separation from God, which leads to death, despair, and destruction, it, suddenly it looks like actually an appealing invitation that is, that is going to, to make you experience the fullness of life. So the temptation here is, is <coughs> you can't trust your father's provision, right? Look at where it's led you. You ever been there? Like you did all the right things, but you're not getting the right results, right? You've been obedient in all the right ways, but it looks like, it looks like everything's falling apart around you. You've obeyed all the rules, and, and the people who broke the rules are actually getting ahead, and, and you're falling behind. You ever been there, right? He's, he's leading Jesus to, to kind of think, you can't trust your father's provision, right? You're doing all the right things. Jesus, you're doing a good job, but your father's not coming through right? You, you can't trust your father's provision. You're about to die, buddy. Look at you. You're withering away. And, 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 and guess what? You have the power to solve this problem. You have the ability to, to take care of this, right? There's a subtle taunt going on here in the pride shame realm, right? When he says, if you are the son of God, right? Which since you are. So there's kind of this, this, this play where he's like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you're the son of God, you know? So just command the rocks to become loaves of bread. You can do that. You have that power. It's within the realm of your authority. Why don't you do that? But there's an implied twist there. If you're the son of God, there's a taunt. <laughs> why don't you prove it? Why don't, you, why don't you exercise that authority? Don't just have it. If, if you have it, why don't you actually use it, right? And it's all wrapped up in this seductive, reasonable logic. Almost like a friend coming alongside. Man, you are so hungry. You are so desperate. Your needs aren't being met. Your father obviously has forgotten who you are and where you are. He must be distracted. But you can take care of this, you know. You can take care of this. 
right? You, you can't trust your father's provision, but you can provide for yourself. What's Jesus' response to this temptation? It is to pull out the sword of the Spirit. It is to quote Deuteronomy 8.3, right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture. And in quoting Scripture, he is taking up the sword of the Spirit. Not only the, the sword forged by the Spirit, but the sword um, uh, empowered by the Spirit. Satan, recognizing that, uh, that he's been uh, rebuked, goes on to the next temptation. Take a look at verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that would be the city of Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This would be the high point of the city. So up on the pinnacle of the temple, you would be able to see the bustling city all around you. Everybody in the marketplace, everybody coming to worship. Um, it is a place that, that nobody's going to notice you up there, but you're going to see everyone from up there. And if you were to do something dramatic up there, you could very quickly gain the attention of the entire city. Right? If you were to do something like, say, throw yourself down. Right? So the devil took him to, to the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Which it seems like a really stupid temptation until you realize what that would mean is that everybody in the city would suddenly look up and see Jesus descending from the pinnacle. Right? Which would obviously um, usher him into a position of authority and influence with the entire city. And, and look what he does now. Now he quotes scripture at Jesus, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Our enemy knows scripture, and he knows how to twist it. And, 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 and he takes the scripture. He's like, all right, you want to quote scripture at me? Okay, I got rebuked. But look, I can bring scripture to you, right? Deceptively, seductively, and I can put this temptation in front of you. Jesus said to him again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, the temptation here, uh, previously he's saying you can't trust your father's provision. Now he's saying you can't trust your father's plan. Your, your father's plan isn't working out right for you, right? You can tell a better story for your life than he's telling for you right now. He's, he's kind of messing up, <laughs> right? Look where you are. You're in the desert, right? You're skin and bones. You're withering away. You're, you're kind of dying out here right? You, you can't trust your father's provision. He's not giving you what you need. And you can't trust your father's plan. Don't wait. Take action, right? You have the ability to take action, right? And there's a subtle taunt here as well. When he's quoting scripture at Jesus, the subtle taunt here is, don't you have enough faith to take action? Right? There's some promises in scripture that you can take hold of. Scripture promises that... that um, his angels will take care of you, right? Scripture promises that, that on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Don't you have enough faith to take this action? Do you, do you see the twisting of logic here where it almost becomes the spiritual option, right? Where, where the enemy's like, look, do you really want to be spiritual? Then you should, you should stop being passive. You should stop... You, you need to, so the, the, the subtle temptation is, you need to tell the story for your life because you can do it better than, than God can. The, the veneer on the surface is, it's actually spiritual for you to do so. It's actually an act of faith for you to do so. It's such reasonable logic, right? You're just proving your faith. Won't your father be honored? 
By you actually taking him at his word and putting it in action. Now what's Jesus' response? To quote Deuteronomy 6.16, right? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? You're right, I could do that. But that would be putting God to the test as if I didn't trust him. That would be putting God to the test as if, as if I really needed to test my father, whether or not he would be telling a better story for my life than I would tell for my own. I, I will wait for my father to reveal me to the nation of Israel. I will wait for my father to, to reveal that, that I am the son of God, the hero, the Messiah. Third temptation, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, so really, it's like all subtlety falls away at this point, right? Satan's been rebuked twice. He's brought, he's brought his, his crafted arguments, his crafted temptations, and, and he has been exposed as a liar, and, he has been ex- and, and, and um, the, what he was trying to wrap was, was exposed clearly as just death. And uh, so now he, he just kind of shows up, and he's like, look, instead of trying to sneak in the side door, I'm just going to kick in the front door, okay? Here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to reveal to you what I desperately want. Right? And I'm willing to show you what I'm willing to give up in order to get it. What does he want? Well, he wants to be worshipped as equal with God. Right? He, he, wants to, he, he wants to rob God of his glory. He, he can never become equal with God. He, he is a creature created by God. But, but he has ingested this story, developed this narrative, that if he can steal God's glory, if he can diminish God's glory, somehow that makes him equal with God's glory. If he could get the Messiah to simply bow down to him, if he could get the, the promised hero to bow down to him the same way he got the first parents to do so, the same way he deceived them to follow his plan, to rebel against God, to mistrust God and, and instead trust themselves. If, if he could do it again with this new human, right, this, this second and last Adam, if he could do it again, his victory would be complete. So he's like, look, I'm going to put my cards on the table, man. You bow down to me, I give you everything. And you're like, how could he even promise that? He's not God. You're right, but God has given him or granted him a, a season of authority and power. Scripture calls him the God of this world, or more specifically, the, the God, lowercase g, the God of, of this age, right? And, and, and he is offering this title to the Messiah. Look, I'll give it to you, man. I'll give it to you. So here's the thing with, with our enemy. He believes his own propaganda. <laughs> a number one mistake of any propagandist. You never want to believe your own propaganda. But he does, man. He believes his own propaganda. He's ingested his own deceptions. And he takes his short-term success as a sign of his long-range victory. Right? He looks at his short-term success. And he's like, I, I did it. I'm doing it. This is actually happening. 
Now, here's the thing. He, he has the same scriptures we have. He, he's studied the same texts. We, he knows how the story ends. I had, I had a, a, an instructor one time, a, a guy that I was learning from. He's like, the only way to explain this is that he's theologically insane, right? He, he knows the same things we know, but he doesn't come to the same conclusions. He, he really does think that he can derail this thing and come up with a different ending. And, and this is his attempt, right? He's like, look, I, Jesus, I'll give it all to you, man. I'll give it all to you. Just give me the one thing. I want. Now, of course, layers and layers and layers of satanic deception going on, right? He's only God of this age. He's not actually God of this world. Um, He's a lowercase g, not the uppercase g. He has a season of influence and authority, but it's all limited and, and it is doomed. And I have no doubt his fingers were crossed even as he was making the promises and he had his own plans for, for undercutting his own promises, right? Here's the thing with our enemy. He always promises more than he's going to give. And, and, and he's always going to take more than you plan to give, right? He, he, is, he is always going to promise you more than he'll give, and he'll always take more than you planned to give, right? Um, so the temptation here is you can't trust your father's power, right? You can't trust your father's provision. You, you can't trust your father's plan. And now you can't trust your father's power, right? I'm going to give you what your father said he would give you, but it's actually mine. All these kingdoms of the world, they're mine. And I'm going to give them to you. If you will very simply take a knee to me, you can't trust your father's power. What's his response? Jesus' response, once again, is to pull out the sword of the Spirit and to quote Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he does it, of course, with a final rebuke. Be gone. <laughs> We're done here, right? This, this stage is done, and, and you are defeated. Three attacks. Three times he is, he is defended by the Word of God. Three times um, our enemy is pierced by the Word of God until he runs away with his tail between his legs. All right, it's a crazy passage. Crazy passage. And what in the world are we supposed to do to apply it to us, right? It's about Jesus, right? This is Jesus actually having a confrontation with, with Satan, right? What does that have to do with Steve, right? Who, who barely can tie his own shoes in the morning sometimes. Well, there are some principles of warfare that we can take away that I believe are very, very instructive for us. First of all, um, we need to trust that the Word of God is going to fight for us. Like, we legitimately have to trust that, that the Word of God is going to fight for us. Right? When we come across a passage like this, which really is epic in its scope, right? The Son of God who has been incarnated as the Son of Man coming into an actual conflict with um, the chief tempter and deceiver, the leader of rebellion. Now, we could be tempted to see that, that this passage has no relationship to us, but that would be a true misreading of what's actually happening here. Because Jesus fought as human, not as God, right? Nowhere does Jesus go like, here's my God glory, and I will just melt you, right? Nowhere does he say, uh, you're now uncreated, right? Nowhere does he, like, like Jesus is in the midst of this battle. The scripture tells us that, that he is not only the creator of all things, he is the one who holds all things together. Like, like, he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is, even in the midst of this battle, the one who is sustaining his enemy's very being. But he doesn't exercise that power to defeat him. 
he exercises the very human power of dependence and trust on the Word of God. So this example is absolutely relevant to us. It is not just history. It is a model for us to follow. Jesus was walking by faith and being strengthened by the Word. Right? He was walking in dependence and confidence. That's faith. Dependence on the revelation of his Father and the Word of God and confidence in the character of his Father as revealed in the Word of God. And that faith is, is not only given through the word, it is strengthened by the word. Because remember, the spirit of God forged this weapon and empowers this weapon. And so the spirit of God is actually at work in Jesus to, to not only give him the foundation of faith, but empower him to move forward in that faith. Jesus is completely dependent on the spirit of God. He is man as man was created to be. He, he, he was not simply acting in, in an alien power, something we could never access. He was modeling for us what it means to be human. Yeah, he wasn't just quoting Scripture, right? He was depending on Scripture. He wasn't just quoting a few verses he memorized. He was trusting the Scripture he quoted. As he brought out these verses, these weren't simply declarations to the enemy. They were reminders to him. They weren't just a sword brought out to, to, to repel the one who was attacking him. They were comforts to his own soul. Instead of trusting the weapons of the flesh, the ones we're so used to, self-protection, self-promotion, self-gratification, self-glory. He trusted the power of the Word to fight for Him. Dependence and confidence. He trusted God's provision. He trusted God's plan. And He trusted God's power. Why? Because He trusted God's Word. God's word revealed to him a God who is redeeming and restoring, a God who has a greater story to tell than any story we would tell for ourselves, and he had completely abandoned himself to that story. He trusted the word of God. And here's the thing. If we're going to trust the word of God, we need to know the word of God, right? You can't trust something you don't know. If you're going to trust the word of God, you need to know the word of God. That's the second principle that, that I would take out of this passage for us, right? The word of God is living and active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, but it won't do you any good if you don't know how to pull it out and use it, right? The sword over on the shelf doesn't do you any good. You have to have the sword in your hand. That means... You need to spend time with the Word of God, getting to know it. See, Jesus knew these verses, right? And you're like, yeah, he was God. That's not why he knew the verses, right? Yes, he is the very embodiment of the Word of God. The, uh, the Gospel of John actually calls him the living Word of God. So yes, yes, there's no doubt. He was the embodiment of the Word of God, but he, he is in this situation. He, he's not quoting scriptures um, because he is the Word of God. He's quoting these scriptures because he has learned the Word of God, right? Jesus knew these verses because he had spent countless hours 
in the word as a Jewish young man. He was, he was taken to, to the synagogue where he would hear the public reading of the word, right? Very few people actually had, they didn't have the privilege like we do of actually having the word of God in their hands. There were scrolls that were kept at the synagogues. And, and as a young man, he would be brought into the synagogue for hours and hours and hours every week for the public reading of God's word as, as the people of God gathered to hear the word of God and process it together and learn from it, right? He learned it because he heard it and, and he heard it and he studied it. Y'all, we need to spend time learning the Word of God. Time spent in the Word is never wasted time. Time spent in the Word is never wasted time, right? Over the course of this pandemic, if we were to count up the number of hours we've wasted watching Netflix, playing video games, um, doing other things, not bad things, just things, right? That's a lot of wasted time, let's be honest, right? There are a few Netflix series that are absolutely worth watching. There's a lot of them that aren't. <laughs> but time spent in the Word of God is never wasted time. What I mean by that is it's never unfruitful. The Word of God gets sown in our, our hearts and, and, and in our spirits and in our minds in a way that it will bear fruit. It is living and it is active, right? It is not simply a distraction. It is not simply to, simply to be studied in a, in, a, in a... It is living and it is active. When, when I was in high school, we moved to Southern California and my mom enrolled uh, me in a, in a Christian high school. I wasn't a Christian. We didn't come from a Christian background. Uh, I had been in a lot of trouble and, and I think this was mom's way of you know, now that we're moving to Southern California, the big city of keeping me from getting into real bad trouble. Um, but it was an upper class, upper middle class Christian prep school that I didn't fit into. I had a horrible experience in, in this high school. And honestly, um, everything in me uh, not only hated that experience, but, but actually it turned to hatred toward the church. Um, I had a, a Bible teacher that required us to memorize scriptures. He wasn't a real uh, nuanced or, or gentle guy. He was also the baseball coach, but he had to teach a few classes in order to be counted as a full-time employee, so they gave him Bible. And, and uh, he didn't do real well with, with young, um, I'll, I'll put a positive spin, curious, um, somewhat challenging students like me. <laughs> Right. I'm sure he had other words to describe what I was and the way I behaved um, because I wasn't uh, in any way inclined to be uh, passive or obedient. Um, but he did require me to memorize scripture. And, and, and as much as I didn't like that school, there were a few things I had to do to pass. Um, years later, after I had come to faith in Christ, years later, um, I'm sitting probably about two years later. I'm sitting with one of my high school friends. Her nickname was Fruity. Um, and it was probably my first experience of having a, a, an encounter where I thought, man, this is actual genuine, genuine spiritual warfare. Um, there was something happening in that conversation. Like I, I met with her to explain to her that I had become a believer in Jesus. In high school, what we had in common is, is that we both thought Christianity was dumb because Christians were even dumber. And, and, and all we had to do was look at American Christianity, the shallowness, the greed, the, the self-centeredness, the manipulation. I mean, the, the, we had every excuse in the world not to believe it. But, but once I had actually come to faith in Jesus, I sat down with her. And, and I was in the middle of this conversation. And 
I started quoting some verses that I didn't know I, I still remembered. I didn't, I didn't know, like I had actually memorized them back in that Bible class in order to pass, and I didn't, I didn't know they were still even in my head, right? So I just, I just kind of, I didn't even know what the next word was. I was like, for by grace you are saved, by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So I just like, these words are coming off my lips. And I'm like, I think that's Ephesians 2, <laughs> right? Like they just come off my lips, but they were the exact perfect verses at that point in the conversation. Like, like there was a sudden change in, in the atmosphere at that table. And for the first time in the conversation, I really felt like I was seeing fruity, like, like my friend, like we were eye to eye. And it led to this space of, of actual, authentic, intimate conversation. And I absolutely believe the Spirit of God brought those verses back to my mind at that specific moment to rebuke the enemy. That, that they acted to, to rebuke the enemy and clear the space and calm the minds so that we could have a genuine conversation. That was one of my first experiences of realizing how powerful the sword is. When, when the Spirit of God empowers the Word of God, it can bring clarity that, that you can't bring, right? To, to do what He wants to do, right? Listen, it's not enough to, to simply have the Word of God. You need to know the Word of God. You need to start where you are. I know this is really intimidating for some of you. But I want to encourage you, you just start where you are, right? When, when some of you guys know I became a believer at a Bible college. That's a whole other story, craziness. Um, but I went to this, this little Bible college and as a 17 and 18-year-old, and, and I was there for two years. And uh, it was a tremendous asset and blessing to me. I became a believer there. Great place to become a believer because then I'm immediately founded in, in principles of studying the Word of God, of how to, how to exegete the Word of God. I had... Um, uh, training in Greek, um, and, 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 and that was a huge asset to me, huge blessing. But here's what that did as a 17 and 18-year-old. I mean, I don't remember how many things you remember when you were 17 and 18 that you learned. Um, that became the foundation for a lifelong passion of studying the Word of God. People are sometimes surprised to find out that I haven't, I haven't gone to seminary, right? I, this is my second career. I was a teacher and a principal. I've got an English degree, and, and um, I've got a master's in curriculum development, right? That, that's my background. Um, but I have, from that moment on, dedicated myself to studying the Word of God. As, 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 a, as a young teenager and then an early young adult, um, I, I just developed this goal. My goal was to be able to give you a summary of what every book of the Bible was about. Not because I had memorized the cliff notes, but because I had read them enough that I understood their content. I went from having absolutely no knowledge of Scripture to learning how to navigate scripture and later how to teach scripture. Listen, you start where you are, right? I'm not saying seminary is a bad thing. Seminary is an awesome thing, but, but I'll tell you this. There are some people who have four years of seminary and they know a lot about the Bible, but they haven't grown in their relationship as a result of it. You need to, you need to come to know in relationship the word of God, right? It's okay if you don't know the difference between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. Start where you are. That's where I was. The very first book of the Bible I read was the book of Hebrews. 
And it's this huge contrast between these two mountains. I didn't even know what I was reading, but you know what? The Spirit of God was at work in it because this Word is living and active. And even though I didn't understand most of what I was reading, it was reading and working on me, right? You need to spend time reading it, meditating it, memorizing it, working in it. Because you can't use a sword that you don't know. But I want to remind you with our last point that it's a double-edged sword. It's going to work against your enemy like a weapon. But it's going to go to work on you like a scalpel. So the final point is you need to submit to the word. Right? You need to trust the word. You need to know the word. And, and then finally, you need to submit to the word. If we're going to use the sword of the spirit, we have to submit to its owner, <laughs> the spirit. Right? This isn't, a, this isn't something to be mastered. Right? I don't study this so that I can have my theology right and tell people how they're wrong. I don't study this so that I can have my systematics all in order so that I can, I can, I can correct people who are wrong and, and I can sit in judgment over people I disagree with and, and, and I can get on Twitter and, and you know, um, slam people. Listen, I study the word primarily to submit to it. Right? It's not primarily a weapon to be used against others. It is primarily a scalpel to be used on me. The word of God is always going to work against its enemy, rebellion against God. So with one edge, it's going to defend us. With the other edge, it's going to go to work on us and the enemy within us. Right? The, the sword cuts through the schemes of the enemy uh, and exposes the lie and, and, and shows us what is true. But the sword also cuts through the lies that enslave us. Right? Exposing our false motives and our selfish goals. Listen, the primary goal for picking up the word isn't mastering it. It's to be mastered by it. If we're going to walk in its power, we need to learn to walk in submission to its owner. Right? Satan was trying to tempt Jesus. You can't trust your father's provision. You can't trust your father's plan. You can't trust your father's power. You can tell a better life for your story than he would tell for you. Right? But his heart and his mind were protected from the assault by a deep conviction that the word wasn't just true, it was true for him. So it's important to study it. It's important to seek to know it and to understand it. But listen, y'all, it is living and active. And as you are studying the word of God, it is studying you. And when you open it up, man, it is going to open you up and it's going to expose some things that are hard for you to face and hard for you to see because it's going to expose the thoughts and intents, the motives of your heart. It's going to show you things you, that are hard for you to see and are going to require you humility to embrace. But remember, our strength comes from our dependence and our confidence, right? We aren't strong in ourselves. We stand in the strength of his might and the word of God continually invites us out of our fake strength into his true strength. If we're going to walk in the power of the word of God, we need to walk in submission to its owner. Y'all, let me close us in a word of prayer, uh, and then we will share communion together, and then uh, we will close out with some worship. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the word of God. This incredible gift. I mean, what a crazy thing that you would reveal yourself to us in words. Uh, not just in history, not just in, 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 in but, but actual revealing yourself to us in words that we can study and we can read. And that as we engage them, you're engaging us. And as we open this, you're opening us. Lord, teach us not to despise this book from over-familiarity. 
because it just sits on a shelf that, that somehow it's less valuable because they're everywhere. Lord, this book has come to us at great price, not only to the people of God in history, but because you paid the ultimate price that we might receive its message. Open us up, even as we open this word, that we might be changed and transformed. 